Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Friends, the life of a disciple is to be cross-shaped. It is to be modeled after the wisdom of the cross. And the wisdom of the cross is jarring to the world's way of thinking. It offends the sensibilities of every culture. And this is because God has judged the wisdom of the world. And He has told us in His Word that it is doomed and will come to nothing. What counts and what is eternally significant is His wisdom in His Word. But every now and then, we are tempted to rethink and reimagine the shape of the Christian life, especially when we see the prosperity of unbelievers around us. We're tempted to look for some sort of middle ground between the values of the world and the way of the cross. We're tempted to proclaim the gospel in a way that would appeal to the world or even adopt standards of thinking and living so that the world might be impressed with Christians or even highly esteem Christianity. But Paul will have none of that. He writes, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Any believer who forgets that is proud and self-deceived. And the best way to burst that bubble is to turn to Scripture. So please turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 6 to 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 6 to 13. This is the Word of God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we now look to your word, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might understand truth and wisdom. Teach us not to go beyond what is written but to glory in the cross of our Savior. 
May we put on the mind of Christ, bring every thought captive to His Word, and boast in Him alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes the best way to expose the error of a person's thinking is to point out the irony of their situation if what they were saying were true. In 2009, the New Age guru Deepak Chopra went on live TV in the United States to debate whether or not Satan was real. And he was on that show with a liberal Anglican bishop. There always has to be a liberal Anglican bishop, an evangelical pastor, and a former prostitute turned Christian. And on that show, Chopra forcefully argued that there was no such thing as good and evil, no such thing as Satan or God, no such thing as morality. We are our own gods, he said, and reality is what we make it to be. So any kind of religious belief, especially that of Christianity, is wrong. In fact, all belief, he said, and I quote, is just a cover-up for insecurity. After the debate was over, during the Q&A time, a man from the audience came up to the microphone and asked him, Dr. Chopra, you said that all belief is a cover-up for insecurity. Is that right? And Chopra promptly responded, yes, that's right. The man then asked him, and do you believe that? And Chopra promptly responded, yes, I do. And the entire audience burst out laughing, leaving Chopra looking completely confused. If all belief was just a cover-up for insecurity, then his belief that all belief was a cover-up for insecurity was also a cover-up for insecurity. And friends, in this text, Paul does something similar with the Corinthians. He points out to them that if they were trusting in cultural wisdom and being proud about their judgments, if their assessments about their leaders were in fact true, then not even the apostles, through whom their leaders had come to faith, would qualify as worthy leaders. Their judgment would disqualify even their church's founder, the Apostle Paul. You see, the Corinthians had assessed certain leaders on the basis of their rhetorical skills and their reputation and influence, the very thing that their culture was impressed with. They had not only prided themselves in their assessments and their leaders, but they had also formed their own little fan clubs, and they were quarreling with other members. Now, in the first five verses of chapter 4, Paul tells them that their judgment was wrong because their criteria was worldly. He also tells them that their attitude was prideful because their assessment was premature. The God who sent His Son to die on a shameful cross for the sins of His people tells us that leaders are to be what God in His wisdom tells them to be. If God's wisdom has judged the world's wisdom, then shouldn't we be supremely concerned with what is right in God's eyes rather than what is impressive in the world's eyes? Paul says Christian leaders are to be seen as servants and faithful stewards to His Word. They're not called to be impressive in the eyes of the world any more than the cross was impressive in the eyes of the world. And so in these next few verses, verses 6 to 13, he continues to point out that far from becoming wise in adopting the standards of their culture, these Corinthians had become foolish in their thinking. Moreover, such foolishness, according to Paul, is rooted in pride. And so Paul teaches the Corinthians that those who lean on cultural wisdom are proud, but those who trust in the way of the cross will be humbled. Those are the points of our sermon this afternoon. Number one, the Corinthians were arrogant, and number two, the apostles were being humbled by God. Corinthian pride and apostolic humility. Don't be like the Corinthians. Be like the apostles. But first, let's consider what this text teaches us about Corinthian pride. 
Despite being blessed by so many gifts of grace, the Corinthians were being arrogant. And that is because they had forgotten the cross and that and they had allowed themselves to be impressed with the very things that could not save them. They were proud of their worldly assessments. And so Paul reminds them that everything that he had said earlier about what Christian leaders were to be like, he and, he and Apollos had actually applied those truths to themselves. They were living out the implications of those truths. Look at verse 6. I have applied all these things, meaning all that he had said about leaders and, and servanthood, their accountability and stewardship of the Word of Christ, all those truths I have applied to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. You know, Paul knew that there were some taking his side and some taking Apollos' side. And so he says, look, neither I nor Apollos think of ourselves in this way, because that's not how God wants us to think. Paul says, look at us as examples to be imitated. Our lives are for your benefit, he says. Well, in what way did he want them to benefit? Well, look at the text again, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Now, usually when Paul makes a reference to something that is written, he has in mind the Old Testament Scriptures. And this certainly includes all those Old Testament quotations in the first three chapters that tell us that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise and that no eye has seen what He has prepared for us and how we are to boast in the Lord alone, all those verses. But friends, what is written also includes what Paul himself was writing to the Corinthians. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13? We impart God's revealed wisdom to you in words, words taught by the Spirit. Beloved, to be Spirit-led is to be centered on the revealed, written Word of God. Don't go beyond it, says Paul. Learn from us as we ourselves submit ourselves to the wisdom of God. Learn this truth from us for this purpose. Look at the text. So that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now remember what was happening. They were not only impressed with what their culture was impressed with, but they were also impressed with themselves. Each group was lobbying for their leader because they were proud that they were following the best. The Corinthians were puffed up like hot air balloons. They were full of themselves, so to speak. See, the issue of pride was driving most of the problems at Corinth. And so if you read this letter carefully, you will find that Paul addresses this head-on in several places. So in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 18 and 19, he calls some of them arrogant. In 1 Corinthians 5, 2, he calls the members arrogant. Brothers, when you turn away from God's wisdom in His Word and you turn to whatever impresses you in your culture, you are being arrogant. Arrogant. See, these Corinthians were behaving in this way because they had forgotten God's grace to them in the gospel. Don't you remember? Not many of them were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. They had forgotten that. And what God had rejected, they were now embracing. And they were thinking of themselves as godly. They had forgotten that because of God's grace and God's grace alone that they were in Christ Jesus. 
And because of him, they were enriched in every way. And so Paul reminds them of this. Look at verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? In other words, who is the one who is making these distinctions among yourselves? That this leader is better than the other. On what basis do you do this? Asks Paul. You see, they were doing this not only with their leaders and their teaching, but they were also making these sorts of judgments among themselves with regards to their gifts. They were evaluating their spiritual gifts and were deciding whose gift was showier and more prominent. And therefore, they were deciding, well, which member is actually needed and who's dispensable? And that was their cultural way of evaluating a spiritual gift. Does it make you look important? Does it have the wow factor? And they were doing all these things thinking that they were doing well spiritually, that they were being loving Christians. And Paul says, oh no, you don't understand what Christian love is. If you want to understand what Christian love is, you need to look at the cross. You've forgotten the wisdom of the cross. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not, what's the word, arrogant. Paul says you've turned to godless wisdom instead of the wisdom of God. Have you forgotten the source of your blessings? What do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have is a gift of grace, says Paul. Even those differences that you have noted among your leaders, they're given by God. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Friends, whatever gifts a Christian leader may have, he has because of the grace of God. And so when Paul compared himself to the other apostles, he said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, I am not worthy to be an apostle, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The proud man would say, oh, I'm a better preacher because by the international standards of preaching, my rhetoric is better. My sermons are shorter, they're punchier, they're more humorous. I can grab people's attention. I have a worldwide ministry and therefore my reputation draws larger crowds. The proud man would judge himself by worldly criteria. He would have an inflated view of himself and his achievements and his status. Beloved, that sort of thinking, this sort of reliance on what the world values is antithetical to the cross. Remember, the reason the cross is offensive is because it is a slap in the face of human pride. The violence of the cross. Remember, the cross is so bloody. The violence of the cross tells us that we are not simply misguided people who need purpose. No, the cross tells us that we are sinners who have offended a holy God. And our fallen nature and our sins are so vile and offensive that they deserve God's just wrath. And the glorious wisdom of God which demolishes human pride tells us that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves unless we accept God's just condemnation of our sin and cry out to Him for mercy and forgiveness. No good deed, no good thought can put us in God's good books or earn His favor. You see, the cross condemns all self-righteousness. It will kill you before it makes you alive. See, the message of the cross does not call you to a negotiation with God where you can offer your sin-stained good deeds as bargaining chips to gain access to His kingdom. No, the cross tells you that you are traitor to the king. 
And it calls you to lay down your rebellion and to accept the charge that you deserve to die and be condemned to hell. And your only hope is to look upon the man on that cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Your only hope is to recognize that you are so beyond any kind of human help that only God Himself in the person of His sinless Son can save you. And this is the way He saved us. He died on that cross in the place of sinners as their substitute so that they could be forgiven of their sins and receive His sinless righteousness as a gift of His grace. He died and on the third day He rose again to make us alive with Him, to give us new hearts that desire to follow Him and to trust in His wisdom. See, the Corinthians were not thinking Christianly. And so Paul reminds them of the grace of God. Don't you remember the grace of God displayed on the cross? Everything you have is because of the grace of God. Remember His grace and don't go beyond what is written. Beloved, we are called to the faithful stewardship of His Word and any difference in our abilities must be seen in light of the grace of God. Charles Spurgeon the great British Baptist preacher once told this story. Spurgeon said, I shall never forget one day when my dear old grandfather was alive. I was to preach a sermon. There was a great crowd of people and I did not arrive for the train was delayed and therefore my grandfather commenced to preach in my place. He was so far on in his sermon when I made my appearance at the door, said Spurgeon. Looking to me, he said, You have all come to hear my dear grandson, and therefore I will stop so that you might hear him. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Can you, Charles? And my answer from the aisle was, I cannot preach the gospel better, but if I could, it would not be a better gospel. You see, these men were happy to commend each other because they saw their ministries as gifts of grace. They were both called to be faithful to the gospel and not jealous about who could preach better. But that's not what the Corinthians were doing. They were judging their leaders according to the wisdom of the world and then glorying in their accomplishment. And so Paul rebukes them for their arrogance. The next few verses are an indictment by Paul. Look at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Don't miss the word already in this text. This is important. Because if you remember in chapter 3, verse 21, one of the reasons Paul tells the Corinthians that it is futile to fight over their leaders is because all things are theirs in Christ. So don't look to the wisdom of the world to assess your leaders because the world and its wisdom is going to pass away. One day when Jesus Christ comes back and He makes all things new, you will inherit the earth. You will be an heir of the world. In Him you possess everything by virtue of His Lordship. You may not have much in this age, but in Christ you possess everything, all of it. But these Corinthians were behaving in a way as though they had already arrived at that place. They were boasting as though they had everything they needed because of their superior assessments and their superior leaders. And Paul says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You think you have everything, don't you? You think you're spiritually abounding. You're satisfied. You're wealthy. It's though as though you're reigning like kings in glory. Your spiritual train has gone way ahead of us. And we apostles, oh, we're still left standing on the platform. But you, oh my, 
you've advanced. Without us, meaning the apostles, you've become kings. You have been clothed with royal honor that the world bestows. And would that you did reign. Paul saying, I really wish this was true, that you were actually reigning like kings so that we might share the rule with you. Friends, this is a devastating critique of their foolhardiness to think that they had a place in the kingdom without the apostles themselves. You know, one author calls this a cross-centered critique of human boasting. You see, what Paul is rebuking is the way that the Corinthians saw themselves. With the criteria that you have, you seem to be doing great. But um, what would happen if you applied those same criteria to us, the apostles? That's what he's asking. If you really believe that there's great value in cultural wisdom, well, how do we fare by that standard? I'll tell you how we fare. Not too good. Not too good. See, the Corinthians were not thinking rightly. Do you know who thinks like that today? Do you know who the modern-day Corinthians are? Friends, the modern-day Corinthians are the prosperity preachers and cultural Christians. The prosperity preachers say, God wants you to be rich. He wants you to be healthy and successful. And the world listening to that says, oh, I want that. I value that. You don't need to be born again to want that. And so they glory in that. But by those very same standards, Jesus and the apostles and all those saints in Hebrews 11 who are commended for their faith, they fail miserably, don't they? They're not healthy. They're not rich. They're not successful. Oops. Wrong standards. What about cultural Christians? See, cultural Christians also look to the wisdom of the world by thinking culturally. So the Bible calls us to be humble and grateful, but my culture tells me to show off, to flaunt my wealth. Only then people will respect me. Paul would say, that's being arrogant. Arrogant. The Bible tells you to discipline your children in love, but the grandparents don't want you to because the grandparents are supposed to spoil the children in their culture. Grandma and grandpa are being arrogant. Suppose you want to get married and you're looking to Scripture to see what God's wisdom has to say about a godly spouse. But your parents don't want to hear any of that. No, they only care about the color of the girl's skin, the respectability of her family, and whether they can get along. How, how tall is she? How educated is she? Can she cook? And then when you tell them, Mom, Dad, is she a believer? Does her life display the fruit of the Spirit? Is she a member of a local church where she is being discipled and discipling others? What does she think about the roles of a husband and a wife? What does she think about prior, prioritizing the home? Or even more shocking, what are her theological distinctives? And your parents hear that and they say, look, we know what's best for you. We know what's best for you. Mom and dad are being arrogant. Arrogant. Your best was crucified on a tree in Calvary. That's what your best is worth. You don't know better than God. You know, maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, but that's the way I think. My first impulse is to wonder what people would think, what my family would think. Well, beloved, if this is you, repent of your pride 
and put your trust in God's Word. Don't go beyond what is written. Reject what is culturally familiar and important and put all your trust in God's Word. It is all sufficient for life and godliness. And remember that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. That's 1 Peter 5.5. Turn to Christ and seek His forgiveness. And then look for help from another member to help you think biblically and how to make godly judgments about yourself and others. You know, one of the reasons Christians turn to cultural thinking is biblical illiteracy. Biblical illiteracy. How do you know how not to go beyond what's written if you don't know what's written? And so get together with another member and study the Bible. And don't just read it. Ask questions of the text. Ask how it applies to you and your particular life situation. Friends, if you don't look to the wisdom of God's Word, you will look to whatever is exalted in your culture. And here's what Jesus thinks of that. Luke 16, 15. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, if you're discipling someone who professes to be a Christian and they keep insisting and persisting in their cultural ways of thinking, it may be that they're not a believer. It may be that they are a natural person, as 1 Corinthians says. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It may be that he or she does not have the Spirit, So love them, be patient with them, share the gospel with them instead. It may be that they find the wisdom and the way of the cross foolish because they have never really believed in the cross. You see, Paul wanted to change the way these Corinthians were thinking, and the only way to do that was to help them see that God's plan for them was not to be honored in the eyes of the world, but to be rejected, to suffer and be regarded as foolish just like Christ was. Friends, to take up a cross and follow Jesus brings humiliation and not honor in the eyes of the world. The world does not and cannot recognize true wisdom and true riches. Brothers and sisters, remember, the world mocked and spat upon the true king. How strange it would be to think that the world would now honor His disciples. Jesus said in John 15, verses 18 to 20, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were off the world, the world would love you as its own. Isn't that interesting? If you were off the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The reason for the hatred is not sociological. It's theological. Remember the word that I said to you, says Jesus. A servant is not greater than his master. See, Paul and the other apostles put their trust in the message of Christ and Him crucified, and their lives were living examples of the wisdom of the cross. And that brings us to our second point. It was God Himself who had humbled His apostles. Look at verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Here's the reason why the apostles don't live up to Corinthian cultural standards. He says, for God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. 
He has put our lives on display as last of all as men sentenced to death. You know, Paul here uses the imagery of a Roman procession. When a Roman general would return back to Rome after fighting a war, there would be an elaborate celebration of victory in his honor. And in his procession, he would parade through the streets of Rome displaying his conquest. And at the end of the line, last of all, would be the captives, prisoners of war in tow, who would then be put to death publicly. And Paul says, we apostles are like that. God has put us on display to the world and angels and men. It is no secret. God ordained this disgrace and it has cosmic significance. We have become a spectacle just like our Savior. Friends, this is the great paradox of the Christian life that is so common to the pages of the New Testament. Those things that seem to be shameful and foolish in the eyes of the world are for our glory and triumph. Christ has triumphed in His death and resurrection, and yet as His followers, we are dying, and yet we are alive in Him. We're sorrowful, and yet we rejoice. We are poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing in this world, yet possessing everything. We're living in the already, but not yet, of the kingdom of God. Already, because Christ has inaugurated the new covenant. He has caused us to be born again. The powers of the age to come have broken into our present. We have been made alive. And yet we're not there, are we? We haven't arrived. We still await the resurrection of our bodies. We still await the coming of Jesus. Paul says it in this way in Romans 8, 36 to 37. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Friends, as children of God, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. That's Romans 8, 17. This is God's will for us, and He has revealed that to us in His Word. And that's the only kind of wisdom that matters. Glory awaits those who abide in God's wisdom, not those who abide in the wisdom of the world. Beloved, the world has no power to transform you. So don't be conformed to the world. Look to the cross and see true wisdom. It is folly to those who are perishing, but to us it is what? The power of God. Church, our definitions of success ought to be informed by the message of the cross. It ought to be informed by the gospel. Don't be enamored by worldly models of leadership or discipleship that have forsaken the wisdom of the cross. Be committed to the truth of the gospel and pray that God would keep you faithful to His Word and willing to suffer for the sake of obeying it. That's what a congregation should look like. It ought to be a model of the wisdom of the cross. We should not be a people who are enamored with power and success and triumphalism. The cross of Jesus Christ determined Paul's apostolic ministry, and it should shape ours. It determines our message and our method and our ministry. And remember this, those who preach Christ crucified cannot expect to be crowned with glory by the same world which crucified Him. Set your expectations right. D.A. Carson writes, former rebels who have by the grace of the king been won back to the loving allegiance of their rightful monarch are not likely to to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. See, Paul in effect tells the Corinthians that if their judgment disqualifies the apostles themselves, 
then it is their thinking that is flawed. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Again, he's pointing out the irony of the situation if their judgment is true. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Beloved, when Paul preached the gospel, he was called a babbler by the wise men of his day, by the intellectual elite of his day. They called him a babbler. That's Acts 17, 18. When he preached the gospel to King Agrippa, Festus said that he was out of his mind to believe the things he was saying. That's Acts 26, 14. Friends, what do your unbelieving friends say about you? Are you weak in this world, suffering hostility for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of obedience to Christ? Or are you strong, free from all kinds of opposition and trials for the sake of His name? What does the world actually think of your beliefs? Not according to what they believe Christianity preaches, But how do they respond to what you say the gospel is? How do they respond to the gospel of Christ and Him crucified when you speak it, when you tell non-Christians that they're sinners and that they will perish if they do not put their trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for their salvation? What do they think then? Do they hold you in honor? Beloved, there is something very wrong with our Christianity if we are only able to live our Christian lives as long as we are permitted to by the world. There's something very wrong with our understanding of grace if we will only obey the word of Christ if the world gives us permission to. There's something very wrong with our Christianity if our greatest concern is that the church should never look foolish in the eyes of the world. You know, I seriously wonder if we or any of the other evangelical churches here in the UAE would want to be associated with someone like Paul or even hire him as their pastor. You know, this man was always getting in trouble with the government. Everywhere he went, he got into trouble with the authorities. Eventually, he was beheaded by the Roman government. He spent a lot of time in jail. It's going to be tough for, you know, sermon card. So much time in jail because he wanted to obey God rather than men. People around him got into trouble because of him. People got beat up because of him. Do you remember poor Sosthenes? He got beat up. He was just there. Would you want a man like that for your pastor? Oh, the government might shut us down if we had a radical man like that. You know, if that idea makes you nervous, there's something seriously wrong with the way we're thinking about the Christian life. And perhaps we are more like the Corinthians than we would like to admit. See, Paul's not simply bursting their bubble just to make a theological argument. No, he was describing his life at that very moment, at the time of his writing. Look at the text, verses 11 to 13. To the present hour, right up to this point, he says, He's referring to the apostles who were engaged in gospel ministry just like he was. And he says, we hunger and thirst. You think Corinthian culture would be impressed by that? We're poorly dressed, meaning poorly clothed. Not like the classy public speakers of Corinth. And buffeted, which means beaten, treated roughly. I wonder if respectable people are treated like that in Corinth, and homeless. I don't have a permanent address, he says. And here's what's worse. 
and we labor working with our hands. You know, in Corinthian culture, manual labor was considered to be a shameful thing. No, you had, you had slaves to do that kind of work. No respectable Corinthian would do that. All the respectable and influential people would be artists and, and thinkers, you know, white-collar folk. And Paul, on the other hand, worked hard with his hands, making tents. It was a hard job and it was a stinking job. He worked with animal hides and leather. You know, Paul is not saying, oh, look at me, I'm so holy. I chose this ascetic lifestyle. No, this was the consequence of preaching the gospel. This was the consequence of him obeying Christ. See, Paul and the lives of these Corinthians, when you contrast them, they're quite remarkable. And the reason he tells them this is because he wants them to see that those cultural values that they were so impressed with do not typically mark the life of an apostle. Now, I know it's very tempting for us to think, oh, we would never make the same sort of error in judgment like these Corinthians. Not so fast. How often do we see when some well-known public figure or celebrity professes faith in Christ, people start to think, yes, now many will trust in Jesus. Christians will finally gain some traction. Now many will be saved because so-and-so, oh, I don't know, Kanye West or Coco Martin has become a Christian. Ah, oh, this is good news for the kingdom. Really? What are you really trusting in? The power of the gospel or the power of celebrity status? When you trust in something that is highly regarded by the world, it empties the gospel of its saving power. That's 1 Corinthians 1.17. God won't act in power when you rely on something that is highly valued by the culture. It goes against His saving design. He will not share His glory with anything or anyone else. Beloved, when you trust in cultural wisdom, here's what you'll get. Strife, jealousy, division. That's what the Corinthians got. You know what you won't get? You won't get the sanctifying power of the cross. You won't get the sanctifying power of the Spirit of Christ. Along with the apostles' suffering, God's power was put on display. Look at the text. When reviled, verbally abused, we bless, he says. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, when people speak lies about us, we entreat, we gently plead with them. Beloved, the wisdom of men cannot produce the work of the Spirit. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Beloved, what is at stake here is God's power for our sanctification. Can there be a, a little bit of handshaking between God's wisdom and the wisdom of men? Can we strike a balance? Can there be a, a, just a little bit of respectability in the eyes of the world? And Paul says, look at us. Verse 13, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says, as far as the world is concerned, we and our ways, as ordained by God, for His glory, we are like garbage in the eyes of the world. We're like scum, like the dirt that accumulates on the surface of the water when you empty the drain. We're like dirty scrapings on the bottom of a shoe. Beloved, if society celebrates believers, it's likely that we have become just like the world. 
and we are not preaching the gospel clearly. And it may be that we're not walking in the obedience of faith. There's no two ways about that. Beloved, I hope this text will make you want to evaluate your own thinking and your own lives to see if you're indeed living in obedience to Christ and His commands. So search your hearts to see if you have allowed pride to turn your eyes from the wisdom of the cross to cultural wisdom. If you find the Christian life too demanding, well, then you really haven't understood the depth of your sin and the magnitude of His grace and love. Jesus Christ is worthy of our very lives. And friend, if you have not put your trust in Him, repent of your sins and do so today. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no one like Him. So take all the vain things that charm you the most and sacrifice it to His blood. And may we all learn to say with Paul, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boast in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, You are worthy of all our praise and all our devotion and all our love and all our service. Give us an unshakable trust in Your Word, in Your wisdom. May we make it our aim to please you, knowing that through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. Teach us to enter by the narrow gate. May we delight in your word as those who find great treasure. And may we abide in it for the glory of our Savior, who is our living hope. In his name we pray. Amen.